Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with Mike Oren, who is the head of design research at Clavio. We're very excited to have you here to talk about something that I'm passionate about, and I know you are, which is building great cultures, uh, specifically research cultures, and having that in mind really from the very beginning, from day one. So thanks so much for coming on to chat with us about it. Oh, excited to be here. Got JH here, too. Yeah, I honestly haven't thought a ton about how you create a great research culture, so excited to learn from this conversation. Awesome. Well, let's start with first things first. You know, why does this matter? Why is this something that you're passionate about, Mike? So with research, most people don't kind of grow up saying, I want to go become a design researcher. And as such, we bring in a lot of people from a lot of different educational backgrounds, as well as as part of making sure we're designing products that are inclusive of everybody. We need people with all sorts of different backgrounds. In order to do that well, we need to really make sure that we're putting a culture together that allows all these different voices and different disciplines to come together and help build and grow one another, as opposed to just kind of having a team of people who are all like-minded and then we can't kind of challenge um, our different interpretations of the world. Nice, yeah. And just to clarify for myself, when you think of research culture, are you thinking about it like within the research team Within the whole company, is it both? Are those different? Like, where do you need to establish this culture and, and how do you think about it? So I think about it as both, but it starts kind of within the team first. And so a lot of the initial legwork I do is making sure that the team itself is really in a place where we've got the psychological safety to challenge one another. If the team isn't able to challenge one another, then it's really hard to then go and challenge a partner somewhere else in the organization where we have research input that suggests a different direction than what they were hoping to do. So it's really kind of building up that kind of safe space first within the team and then expanding out to the wider organization to get people to be comfortable kind of having that those collegial conversations, essentially. Maybe we could just stick right into the, you know, you mentioned psychological safety, which I know is a big I don't want to say buzzword in a pejorative way. It's a good buzzword, right? That when you think about healthy cultures in general. And so I'm curious how you think about what that means and then how you tactically try to make it happen, right? Because I think maybe one of the things we can do in this conversation is there's the sort of philosophical ideal of healthy cultures, and then there's the brass tacks of how do you actually create these things? So uh, how does that play out with psychological safety? Yeah, so... One way psychological safety can actually go, I, I think, either too far in the wrong direction, where I think then it does become a buzzword, hmm. is where it's used to kind of coddle the team a little bit. Because psychological safety shouldn't just be about making sure everybody feels heard and kind of happy. It's really about making sure everybody is willing and able to voice their opinions, especially when they're conflicting with other people on the team. So it's not the absence of conflict. It's about making it so that way the conflict you have is healthy conflict. And I will say that conflict isn't a bad word. I think that's often kind of framed that way. Conflict is like, I come from a sociology background and mm -hmm. there's all sorts of sociology of conflict, but especially within creative fields, conflict is critical to moving things forward. Like if you don't have healthy conflict, then you're not able to explore different ideas. Um, 
of research is all about some form of change management within an organization because we're introducing different ways of thinking about things, different ways of seeing the world, often through the lenses of the people that we talk to and whose voices we're trying to elevate within the organization. In terms of actually going and kind of building that type of psychological safety, it really starts with, as uh, the leader of the team, making sure I'm doing less talking and more listening and asking questions. As a researcher, it's a little bit easier to kind of take that stance, but I think for a lot of leaders, that's an unnatural stance because you're a lot of, especially I think Western culture kind of promotes leaders as kind of that talking figurehead that mm -hmm. has all the answers, all, all the voices. It's not to say that I don't have answers if it came to me, it's to say that I first value the input of my team above my own when we're trying when we're going through this process of kind of forming, storming, norming, as well as trying to come up with new solutions. So being able to put my own ideas and solutions to the side and listening to them. And when I say listening, like really deeply listening, not just kind of listening and then jumping in with my answer at the end. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm just actually curious to just to kind of go a little deeper here. You know, I think really came out very clearly is like one of the first things you mentioned is being important to research culture is being able to challenge each other and have this psychological safety. Why is that valuable for a research team? Is it just like you're going to get information that maybe conflicts with your current worldview and you need to be open to it? Or like, you know, how does this come up as such like a key part of the culture you need to create? Yeah, I think there are a few different things. So one is, I mean, there, there's always a kind of bias that we all have of the world kind of through our own lived experience. And if we don't kind of have that awareness of it and don't allow other people on the team to kind of check us on our own biases, then we risk kind of interpreting the findings that we've gotten through that lens of our personal biases or personal experience instead of ideally the lens of the people that we're trying to learn from. That's one part. The other part is, again, this kind of change agents within organizations we're almost always going to receive pushback from different partners, whether those are designers, product managers, sometimes uh, C-suite individuals, it varies. <laughs> and if we're not comfortable and confident in the interpretation of the data that we've made, then we're going to essentially think and kind of fail to have that proper conversation. By first having that conflict kind of internally on the team and being able to kind of poke holes in each other's work, we're then able to, when we go have those conversations with partners, have that much more confidence that yes, this really is the right thing to do. And yes, we really have interpreted this and looked at um, all the different ways it could potentially be flawed. Yeah, I wanna dig into this healthy conflict thing more because I, you know, I think they're two, uh, not opposite words, but they are counterbalancing forces, right? And so I can imagine, for example, the value is clear, right? We need to be having these debates and figure out how we want to move the world forward and creating this tension to get to a good result. So the how is tricky, potentially. So like, for example, uh, we would not want to launch ad hominem attacks on each other when we are, that would be a bad thing to do. <laughs> what are some good and bad things you want to think about when you're trying to have healthy debates to get to a good result? And how does this play out in the age of, I don't know, microaggressions and, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, microaggressions are a good point. I think for the most part, researchers are pretty good about avoiding them, I hope. <laughs> 
partially because like we spend so much time talking to a wide set of people and listening in, in terms of some of the other luckily i haven't had team members who have gone through that i'd have to think through how i'd handle yeah yeah but but in terms of kind of handling kind of rules for engagement like number one is that don't start with kind of giving your opinion when you're uh, trying to learn the other person's approach mm-hmm, to really mm-hmm. start with questions. So when we have research reviews, we have it in a format where the person has two to three minutes to set context. And then we have silent reviews of the work because people aren't always going to read stuff before meetings. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we go to a section that's just questions. It's not mm-hmm. about giving your opinion. It's about asking questions. And if someone were to ask it, thankfully, doesn't happen, ask a question that's clearly just their opinion kind of framed as a question, then we'd redirect that question or like move on to the next one. Because it really is should like first and for, foremost, like anytime you're talking about uh, healthy conflict, it should be about understanding the perspective of other people. And you only get there by first asking those questions. Right. And uh, you mentioned researchers are trained, right, to uh, look out for you know, biases, micro, like all these things that you know could be problematic. But what about other people in the organization? So, you know, there's an increasing trend for researchers to want to not be siloed and democratization and bringing other people along for the ride outside of research. It, it, does it become more difficult when you're getting feedback and working with folks outside of research teams? I will say that the challenges like that do definitely happen, especially where We've got partners who have very strong opinions that aren't necessarily as grounded in the data. Like this happens kind of across all organizations. I don't want to give any specific examples, but in those cases, it's really just a matter of training the team to step back a little bit, not take those things personally, even if the kind of individual may have taken personal kind of approach to the conversation Mm, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. switching it up and kind of disarming the person. Again, sometimes it's just through asking questions because there's usually something else underlying kind of why they went there, which almost always is that they really feel this other solution is the approach to take. Mm -hmm. They typically do have some rationale behind it, whether it's, hey, we saw this work at this other organization, so I think this is what we should do, in which case you can provide more of the context of why, while that may have worked at that other organization, that's not how the customers within this particular space are kind of thinking about it, or that is an opportunity, but that's not kind of where the larger market share appears to be at this particular time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Part of why kind of using mixed methods is critical, I think, for research organizations to kind of grow and be successful, that we were able to kind of triangulate the different data as well and have those conversations. In other cases, like research is usually an understaffed team. Mm -hmm. So if you really have toxic partners, the solution in those cases is to walk away. Um, Mm -hmm. And that way, almost always, good research speaks for itself and you can tell which teams had researchers working with them and which ones didn't because of the levels of success of those relative teams. To zoom out a little, we've talked a lot about this healthy conflict and, and that being a part of the culture. What are other things you'd want to see in a healthy research culture? Are there other like attributes or things you want to foster and encourage within that team? 
Yeah, so even if you don't necessarily have enough people on the team that people can be, uh, or researchers can be working side by side or kind of uh, closely collaborating, fostering kind of learning from one another. Again, especially I've hired people from a wide set of different academic backgrounds. Some are sociologists, some are statisticians, some are uh, psychologists, um, people who are like religious studies, all sorts of different things in the past. Each of those bring in different perspectives and all of them typically have different methods that they were trained in or sometimes trained in the same method, but in different ways. Like someone who is trained in economics, for example, while they do statistics, the way they do statistics is very different than a statistician. They've got econometrics has different rules around it than traditional uh, statistics. Similarities, they speak partially the same language, but not fully the same language. And acknowledging those differences and seeing how we can all kind of improve and grow each other's skill sets is a, a key portion of it. Nice. So yeah, so uh, being open to conflict, challenging each other, learning from one another. Nice. And then uh, you're being curious. Yeah, I'm being <laughs> curious. Nice. It sounds like, you know, within the team, you can do some things to kind of like seed these behaviors or, or norms, right? So the way you describe facilitating that meeting, like, here's how we're going to do it, you're gonna set those expectations ahead of time and, and you know, create an environment that's conducive to behaving in, in this sort of way and, and make those things the norm. Is that something that you also then do with stakeholders as well? Like in, in like more cross-functional meetings, are you deploying some of those same approaches to kind of help diffuse the culture more broadly? Not at this point for our development within Clavio, but I have done variations of it at other organizations. For example, the last organization I was at research, or at least the type of research we we're bringing to the organization was brand new. Uh, so what we did was we set up different showcase environments where, I mean, this was before COVID. So, so it was basically a walk the wall, but instead of designs, it was like all the different research artifacts and helping make people more aware of kind of the amount of work that goes into not just the interviews and kind of those outputs of uh, the research, but that actual synthesis process, giving people a peek behind the curtain. And that's some cases will help diffuse kind of the notion that some folks within an organization will have that, oh, you only spoke to, say, five people, five customers. Like, how can we really trust that? Well, here's kind of all the work that actually goes into speaking to those five customers and kind of why we're going into a level of depth of it that you weren't necessarily aware of. Like, here's kind of the method behind that. And as part of Events like that, we also did set up kind of expectations for the different partners that were coming in, kind of uh, going through that process. Um, research doesn't typically have a lot of hard power in the organization, so we're not typically able to set kind of full meeting rules. But what we can do instead of that is, as much as possible, bring people along for the journey. So while we're not uh, kind of in a place where we're bringing people kind of through showcases at Clearview, we are in a place where instead of kind of waiting till the end of research projects, we're meeting with partners uh, kind of on a regular basis, kind of doing interim checkouts and listening to kind of any concerns early on. So that way, as we're framing the final presentation, we're able to take into account those concerns and kind of help ease people into 
recommendations that they may not have initially been comfortable with, but now they hopefully understand more kind of why that recommendation is coming and they at least have that kind of pre-warning before kind of it goes up and around the organization too, which also helps ease some of those tensions. And I imagine you've done this, you know, quite a few times you've created, I think, multiple research teams. So how do you think about how this is going to scale over time, right? What does a healthy research culture look like for a team of one versus, you know, a team of five or 10 or or hundreds and everything in between? Let's say a a team of one is almost never a healthy research culture. (laughs) Right, right. Hopefully it doesn't last as one for very long, but like as... Well, that's a great point. I mean, let's like, let's just say the obvious. Why is that? Why is it not healthy to have a researcher team of one? Uh, well, I mean, so a few different things. Like if it's just a team of one that shows that the organization doesn't fully value research, they kind of have heard of it. Uh, it is on that one person to kind of prove the value as quickly as possible. And that's almost always through something that's going to be a, a quick win. If you have someone who's hired you, who wants you to do a big bang project that's going to take you six months, probably walk away. Because uh, <laughs> what's what's going to happen is you're going to take too long to deliver any value to the organization, and then the organization will have moved on, mm-hmm. and you'll have lost that ability to get that momentum that'll help you make the case for a larger team. But as aside from kind of being undervalued at a team of one, you don't really have that those intellectual partners, for lack of mm-hmm. a better framing, um, where you've got different people you can learn from and lean on, as well as, you know, when you do have those uh, partners in the organization that are really difficult to work with, kind of have that emotional support group as well. Because mm-hmm. while we're part of a larger design team, and definitely like designers are, you know, good partners, there are times where we tell designers things that they don't want to hear as well. Mm-hmm. So we're, we still end up getting somewhat isolated, even within those organizations. And it's yeah. hard to have a healthy debate with just yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's, exactly. Uh, yeah, not not very balanced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You mentioned something there of, you know, um, sometimes research is reporting into design. Sometimes maybe it's reporting into product. Sometimes it's its own function reporting into, you know, somebody in the C-suite or, or what have you. How does like where research sits in an organization factor into like how the culture comes into play? Does it does it change anything or it kind of like regardless of where research reports to, you're going to do a lot of these same things? Let's say regardless of where research reports to, it's going to do a lot of same things. Whether it's in product or design, we need to be a neutral party between those, those two. If we're reporting into design and we're only going to say things that the design team is okay with, then we're going to lose trust with the product partners and then mm-hmm. nothing gets on the roadmap to kind of be updated and, and fixed. On the other hand, if we're on product and we're only saying things that uh, the product team is excited about, then a lot of key usability issues might get missed or other things could happen where the designers don't trust our recommendations because they're like, oh, you're product people, not not designers. In reality, we're both and neither at the same time. <laughs> and like being fully independent, then that gives us kind of that full neutrality, but that's rare. And also, I don't, yes, it would be great if you could <laughs> report into the C-suite as research. It's not fully necessary, I, I think. What's necessary is really kind of the impact that you can have in terms of 
having folks listen to both the tactical pieces that you're recommending in terms of these are the improvements we need to make from usability, as well as the more strategic pieces, because we learn a lot that can help. And we have a wide set of methods that can help organizations prioritize. And I would also add the value of deprioritization of work is equally or sometimes more valuable um, output from research as well. Think about kind of an adjacent question. Think about fitting into like the broader company culture, right? So companies are different. Some might be really formal. Some might be more informal, more of a writing culture, more of a meeting culture, you know, all these different sort of norms and things that can emerge. How quickly you like to iterate versus how like we like to be right, you know, that kind of stuff. Do you do you try to take that stuff into consideration as you think about the research culture and how it's like going to be compatible with the what's already existing in the organization? Yeah, uh, so definitely in terms of the way the research group works with the rest of the organization like it's always and it depends um so one of the first things i like to do before kind of figuring out how a research team is going to kind of show up is talk to as many different people and kind of observe as much as possible within that kind of first one to three months and set things up to best align with kind of where what those organization needs are and organizations evolve, uh, especially if they're in hyper growth states. So like also constantly reevaluating and evolving our own kind of working processes. But within the team itself, I, I'd say it's largely the same. The only kind of thing that will sometimes shift is to what degree we take a culture, that's, for lack of a better term, a little bit more insular. And that's usually more, if, if the research team has to be insular, it's usually because there's pieces of the wider company that are a little bit more toxic and it's more for protecting the team. That's not an ideal place for the research culture to be or for anybody <laughs> to be, honestly. Yeah. Um, but like that, otherwise I would say like the research culture is, should largely generally be the same. Like it's, important to make sure that we're able to talk and review consistently uh, live. The way our presentations will show up, but that, that again is kind of more kind of how we show up to the rest of the organization. So like at Clavio, we started with more uh, traditional PowerPoints, uh, but we are a little bit more of a writing culture. And so we have shifted a little bit more to reporting via Word docs. Hmm. But that again was part of like, how can we meet the organization where it's at versus kind of our our own kind of views? Hinted a little bit at something we talk about a lot, which is, you know, when you're joining an organization, so whether you're the first researcher or not, you know, it's important to join an organization that already has a culture you want to be part of, you know, most notably valuing research, right? That should be important to any researcher joining an organization, but also some of these other things you're talking about, research culture should be part of and similar to the rest of the organization's culture. And so this is one of, you know, I folks always ask me when we're doing job interview, what's your culture like? It's like, I don't know, what do you want to know, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a big question, right? So we've talked a little bit about Again, the, the healthy debate and how you interface with other teams. You know, what are some of the other things you're looking for, either within the larger organization that tell you this is going to be a healthy setup for me, or again that you're trying to kind of foster over time in your research teams? Yeah, I will say, well, yes, it's nice if uh, 
the organization is already kind of fully invested in research. Uh-huh. Being the first person in as a researcher, most of the places I've been, that's usually not, not there the yet. Case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it, in my case, it's more like I have to feel like there's the opportunity to have that kind of cultural change uh, mm-hmm. within the organization. So I at least have one person I'm reporting into who is it a champion for it. There has been a time where I've gotten it wrong. And that was a time when I, the only time I've ever left a job was in three months. <laughs> so, I mean, it's hard to know for sure, but the things that I generally look for are kind of why they're looking to bring the research mm-hmm. team in. Is it to solve conflicts between uh, product and design? In which case you already know you're going into a battlefield uh, mm-hmm. and probably don't want to be there. Unless you do. Maybe that's fun for some people. <laughs> that is sometimes that is sometimes fun. But it doesn't I mean, I will say that like at that point though, research isn't maximizing the potential right, right, value. Right, right. Especially since in almost all those cases you're reporting into either design and or product, so you get put in this really awkward position right. in the middle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I also kind of look at how curious is the organization? Like are they really looking to try to do things differently? Are they looking for how to kind of build products that are really aligned to their customers? Or do they have, are they a very sales heavy organization that's really just building uh, what their kind of highest paying customers are doing or kind of maybe not even customers, but potential, if a potential customer asks for something. And by the way, having been on the kind of side of procurement where I'm at, looking for tools, mm-hmm. you're always going to tell your potential <laughs> vendor, like, yeah, I don't like this. I want this other thing. Like that's a negotiation tactic. Right, right. Is that really what you want to build is what your potential customers are asking for? Right. Probably not. Right. <laughs> uh, you really want to understand like what's the actual need and how can we help solve for that? And especially like at a, a SaaS company too, it's are we investing in the things that will either get new customers in or get our existing customers to eventually be willing to pay more. Like if mm-hmm. all you're doing is producing things that your current customers make them even happier, but then they're not seeing enough value that they're going to pay you more than like that puts you into yep. a space where you're just throwing more and more money into something. And especially with kind of the shift in the economy, that's not the right Mm-hmm. approach anymore like at 100%. one point we could do it <laughs> so you're saying right so with net revenue retention in mind right we need to be both bringing in new customers but especially making our existing customers happier and happier and not in an incremental way right yep. and not in a sort of like theoretical way like yeah build exactly what i'm asking for and i'll pay you a lot more money that might happen it might not so good meta lesson there in terms of right processing uh user feedback in this environment in a in a healthy way so we, we were talking before about right so as you build healthy cultures as you scale we talked a little bit about the team of one scenario which you're sort of saying that's not going to be healthy for long but to your point if you're the first person with the idea that there's going to be a second and third, you know, maybe maybe you're set up for success. So what does that look like, that journey from, okay, I'm one person, I can only do so much, we need to add some more folks to help out here. How do you start, you know, building that healthy culture along the way? Yeah. So if you're the first person in there, number one thing is ruthless prioritization. Even if it's a organization that really is excited for research, and you're getting flooded with requests like your first time in the door, 
Do not say yes to everything. Find one to two things where the team is clearly going to be able to able and willing to make changes based off of the research recommendations. So champion research champion teams, partner with those closely. Also make sure that there are things where there's a clear potential impact. You can figure that out sometimes just by doing an audit or heuristic at the start of Mm -hmm, all the mm -hmm. different experience areas. And then make sure it's something that's fairly quick turnaround time. Uh, This isn't just for research, like really any role in any organization, you've got 90 days to make an impact. After 90 days, organizations move on, whoever, whatever Mm -hmm. is kind of the new thing. Um, But if you're able to show that you're able to bring value and deliver something that can excite people, then you're able to make the case for more people, especially if then you get flooded with even more demand that you have to say no to. And you're able to document like, here's all the things that we can't currently do. And here's the potential losses by not supporting those that can help make the case for headcount. The other thing that I'll, I'll recommend is not just kind of doing that work, but also a little bit of PR or sales. So mm-hmm, whether that's mm-hmm. doing some type of like research newsletter where you're sharing different articles as well as um, updates on the work that you're doing and getting involved in any type of team meetings, even if you're not able to support all this, well, you definitely shouldn't support all the things, but even when you're focusing on those one or two things, setting aside one hour per week, just as like office hours to help answer questions about research for folks who might, who probably were doing and continue, will continue to do some of that on their own. is another way to kind of help build that trust, help build that confidence in your, your skill as a researcher mm-hmm. and, and the need for that expertise to come in more. A kind of maybe a sillier question is, um, I feel like when you talk about cu- culture at a company level, you get into like a lot of like values, like little pithy statements or phrases and, and finding ways to recognize people for those values and celebrate them and, and kind of, you know, as a way to kind of help keep the culture top of mind and make new people who join the organization kind of be able to understand it in a quick way. Will you do any of that at like the research team level? Like will you have your own like research values or principles and, and things like that and try to find ways to, you know, live or celebrate them? So usually I'll focus on kind of the wider organization values and for things like that. At my previous company, we did have a need to have separate research values and culture, partially because that was one where we did unfortunately have to get a little insular for a while. We were able to kind of break through the insularity. We just made them the opposite of the company's values. <laughs> Wasn't fully the opposite. But. No, just be a funny sort of passive aggressive move. <laughs> but in, in yeah. that case, yeah, we, we came together as a research team and we, we basically wrote down everything that we felt was most important to us as a team. And then we synthesized those and kind of formed those into core value statements as well as then gave examples of like, how uh, we've seen people on the team do that and put that into our kind of onboarding process for new team members as well. So that way they understood kind of how we were all looking to show up. I have a question back to, it's kind of ties to the healthy debate, but so part of what you're trying to do is to, as you mentioned, you have people coming from lots of different backgrounds across a variety of vectors, you know, academic, their lived experiences, et cetera. And you're creating an environment where everyone can share those and can be heard and 
debate sort of things. So when you talked about the coming up with your own values and you sort of have everyone writing what's important to them, you know, they say in an organization, right, the culture, it trickles down. It's, you know, the co-founders really have an outsized impact, the early employees on what that culture is going to be. Um, and hopefully it's one that over time feels inclusive of everyone that joins, but is not sort of maybe equally comprised from everyone's opinion equally. I'm wondering how do you how do you sort of wrestle with that, right? Because nothing's truly democratized such that everyone, get, you know, and you would risk potentially having no real identity a- after a certain number of opinions are shared and divided equally, right? So I'm curious how you navigate that, letting everyone have a voice and be heard, but still having like a cohesive brand. And maybe this is not really an issue with four or five people on a research team. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the, the previous team, we had about 12 folks. I mean, it was enough people that we, we had some divergent sure. viewpoints, but we also had some core values that really, I think are common across a lot of research teams, things like curiosity, things like a passion for, like, yes, we were creating some of our own values uh, in order to kind of be a little bit more protective of the the team. But at the same time, everyone on the team did value not just being inclusive within the team, but also being inclusive of the wider organization. Mm-hmm. And so making sure we could bring people along and be as collaborative as possible, mm-hmm. it, which I think, again, is fairly, at least for the research teams I've been part of, as typically, even though... Most researchers I've worked with have been actually introverts. We're people, people. <laughs> right. <laughs> kind of interesting. So I, th- I think part of that helps is kind of the things that draw researchers into the field kind of naturally gives us some of that bonding. Even though we we all come from different backgrounds, we have some core values that we all will share. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And and it sounds like you're looking for trends, which aren't too hard to find <laughs> across what everyone wants that culture to look like. Great. So, okay. So we've talked about, you know, what a healthy culture looks like, how that scales over time. I'm curious, you know, we talked a little bit about the current economy, which I think, you know, unfortunately is going to play out in the, the year and, and perhaps more ahead. And in addition to that, or what are you seeing happening in the world right now and in the immediate future that um, maybe are challenges or maybe some tailwinds in, in favor of healthy cultures? And how do you respond to that? That's a good question. I would say right now, a decent amount of kind of what's happening within the wider world is actually probably against some healthier cultures. I mean, the, the layoffs and then fear of layoffs, I think it's putting a lot of uh, power back into the hands of employers, mm-hmm. um, some of which actually might actually be healthy f- for culture. Like some expectations on salaries had gotten a little out of this world. <laughs> it's hard to hire. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as a yeah. hiring manager, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah when, when people are expecting like 50% premium over like what the market rates are, yep. that's, that's yeah. a little... <laughs> Yeah. Real challenging. So especially like when it's also important to me that like we be equitable on the team as much as possible Mm -hmm. um, in terms of making sure that there's fair compensation for everybody with Mm -hmm. similar levels of experience and all of that, no Mm -hmm. matter Mm -hmm. what their background is. And so that actually may be helpful because then you're less likely to get the person who thinks that they're kind of 
hot shit for lack of a better term. Hopefully yeah. I can say yeah, that on the you podcast. Absolutely can. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that way people are going to be coming into it more humble and willing to learn from one another, no matter kind of levels of experience. So that, that is something that I actually do consciously think about when hiring too. Like mm-hmm. I don't want someone who thinks that they're so much better than everybody else, that they're not willing to take the time to listen to someone who might be brand new to research, but has a different background, different training, so may still have something that they can teach this more experienced person. It's a really good point because it's like, you know, the pendulum's always swinging and it never seems to end in a perfectly balanced place. But, you know, you want employees who feel, especially in design, as we talk about ethical research and inclusive research, to feel empowered, to have a voice, to push back against evil forces, the man, whatever, you know, bad stuff. But you don't want entitled employees who feel like, like you were saying, like they're just hot shit and worth beyond market rates that end up, as we see, leading to layoffs eventually, right? So yeah. there is probably a balance there that leads to better outcomes. Yeah, I think there's something too, you know, when you're, when you're operating in a down market, there's obviously a lot of negative consequences that come from that and a lot of hard times for employees and, and companies around the board. But um, it does force you to like kind of focus and, and really be keyed in on the most essential impact driving activities in a way that if you can get it right, to your point, can be kind of a way to reinforce some of the positive elements of the culture of these are the things that really matter and we need to focus on. And and maybe in a different environment, there's some other periphery stuff that's also important, but maybe can be a distraction at times. Like, you know, there's an opportunity to maybe get back to some of that too, but it's uh, it's hard. There's a lot of moving parts for sure. No, I mean, I think the point about focusing more on impact is definitely a great one. One, and I think it's like we talked about a little bit earlier too, like one of the things that research brings is helping with customer retention. And that's one of those areas with a lot of impact, and a lot of things, especially, I mean, sometimes some of what we do that's more on the usability side doesn't get perceived as kind of as sexy as kind of the things that are more kind of generative and innovation focused from a research side, but it kind of shifts in the market economy will hopefully also make those evaluative research studies equally sexy so that way you don't have different or sometimes even more sexy but uh, ideally we don't have different kind of classes of researchers so i have seen that sometimes too that not on the team that i've led but on teams that i've been part of in the past where the people who are doing the more generative research are kind of elevated in status within a research team versus the people who are doing more of the evaluative day-to-day type of research. And that's not a healthy culture either. Mm. So I think that's something that we, we as researchers also need to be conscious of. Are we treating all researchers within our team kind of equally and not kind of looking down on peers who might be doing, quote unquote, just usability testing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is it hard to get big strategic, generative, whatever you want to call it, right? Innovation research prioritized in this market for folks or, or are people, you know, when, when markets change, products have to change too. Is it more important and being prioritized more or does it depend like all things? Yeah, it definitely depends, but I will say that with capital being harder, um, usually new innovations become harder to fund. So it's likely that those are going to become more difficult if they haven't already uh, different organizations. But that doesn't mean that that work has to 
end. I think it's just the way it shows up needs to be a little bit different. So one thing that I've done with uh, both my previous team and with this team a little bit is instead of doing big, we, we did do one big discovery project here just to see test the waters. But generally, instead of doing those big discovery projects, how can we break those down into smaller mm -hmm. discovery projects and either put those questions into a value of studies and kind of build up that knowledge base over time and or still do that discovery project, but instead of kind of reporting out at the end, um, maybe with a midpoint check check in instead kind of really make that into an iterative discovery project we're mm -hmm. constantly checking and constantly working with our partners mm -hmm. in order to also feel free to end that project if we feel like we now have enough to right. have a decision which i think isn't done often enough especially at companies that are maybe resource rich within research it'll be interesting to see how that shifts as well Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. And uh, yeah, happy, happy holidays. What are you doing next week? This, for this oh, year? I drive out an hour to the suburbs and uh, visit my mom for Thanksgiving. What about oh, you? Nice. Uh, I've got family coming here. I'm cooking. So we've got a, a big bird and all that. I always offer. I'm never yeah? allowed. Are you a good cook? <laughs> My mom does better with society, but <laughs> I've always, I, I think I could do the turkey better. <laughs> <laughs> what are you up to, JH? Staying here. Um, no, it didn't really make sense to meet up with uh, extended family this year, so doing a small thing. Maybe get some friends together. Nice. Yeah. Friendsgiving. All right. And where can folks find you, Mike? You're on LinkedIn, Twitter? I'm on LinkedIn. All right. We'll, uh, we'll include a link in the write-up. Thanks so much.